Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. I imagine that by now many of you already realize that in conjunction with White Crow Books, we've just launched the new Thinking Aloud Dialogues book imprint and our first title is, Is There Life After Death? Thinking Aloud Conversations on the Leading Edge of Knowledge and Discovery with Psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be examining the roiling controversies between religion, mysticism, atheism, and science, and what they mean for you and me. My guest is Christopher Naughton. He is a former prosecutor and a civil litigation attorney. He is also the Emmy Award-winning host of the American Law Journal TV program. He describes himself as a believer in the soul of America and the rule of law, and he is author of the new book, America's Next Great Awakening what the convergence of religion, mysticism, atheism, and science means for the nation and for you. Christopher is on the East Coast, and now I will switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Christopher. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Jeffrey, uh, thank you so much. You know, we had an opportunity to do an interview 30 years ago when I was at a public radio station, I guess we were on different sides of the fence, but uh, it was when Roots of Consciousness Part 2, the second edition, came out, and I've been listening to New Thinking Aloud ever since, so I guess I've arrived. I'm delighted to be with you. I'm very impressed with your new book. And uh, to start out with, let's talk about what you mean by the phrase, A Great Awakening. Well, I played off of the Great Awakenings in American history, and that was intentional because in this nation, it seems that when we have a religious revival, it tends to mimic the American Great Awakenings. And there have been at least two, some people say three or four or more, but these are great religious revivals. But they are generally Christian or Christic revivals. They are more dyed-in-the-wool revivals. And as a matter of fact, if you listen to some politicians these days or members of evangelical churches, you'll hear what we need is revival in America. We need a new revival. But what I'm posing in America's next great awakening has been both this very loud, if you will, very Christian voice in this nation, and beneath that a much more silent, less perceptible voice, certainly to, let's say, the average American, which is deeply spiritual in nature and ties into perennial wisdom, which literally goes back thousands of years. I got the impression when I thought about these four major cultural movements, science, mysticism, religion, and atheism, that in a sense, it seems like mysticism and science are relatively united, whereas religion and science and atheism 
Well, atheism and science are also united in, in a sense, in, united by what I would call scientism. But religion is generally, in its most fundamentalist versions, opposed to science and opposed to mysticism and opposed to atheism. Well, what I find, uh, Jeffrey, is that sometimes in this grouping, You'll find people who are allies with any one of the other ones on some issues and then against them on the other. So, for example, you know, evangelicalism would say, oh, we have nothing to do with the occult and with New Age and mysticism. But we certainly do believe in science. Um, and then science will say we want to have nothing to do with New Age mysticism. We want to have nothing to do with evangelicalism. So it depends on the day. It depends on the time. It depends on who you're looking for as far as an alliance goes. But I guess what the book, you know, America's Next Great Awakening is attempting to point out is really the commonality in all of these areas. And they are literally converging. I'm certainly not the first one to say that. William James said it in his own words. Uh, Pierre Chardin has said it. But I, I think we're starting to actually see it happen in our time. The convergence is quite interesting because I do have a, a sense, given human nature itself, that when these social forces begin provoking each other, what that does to the individual is, is provokes deeper thought. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it's funny. We were just talking about, you know, whether you're an ally or an enemy of any of these one groupings. So, for example, the work that's being done a stone's throw from here, three hours from here at the University of Virginia. I know you've probably, I know you've interviewed Bruce Grayson and Jim Tucker. And of course, you know, I think Thomas Jefferson would have been proud. I asked Bruce that question myself because the DOPS program there, the Division of Perceptual Studies, has done that deep dive into reincarnation and near-death experiences in the life review. Well, when I pose that to my evangelical friends, they're all really turned on by the fact that, yeah, see, there's something out there that suggests that there is life after death. There is a greater reality. We don't, this is not the entire experience. When our brain dies, it doesn't mean we die. But then, of course, I have to fill them in. Yeah, but the other part of that issue is, is that it's demonstrating that reincarnation is a real possibility. And of course, Christian evangelicals still don't want to go there because that's some sort of Eastern concept. And Jesus never taught reincarnation. Although if you ask the mystic Edgar Casey, who lived here in Virginia Beach for many years, he would tell you, oh, yes, he did. Well, reincarnation is, is an interesting one, especially because Orthodox Jews accept reincarnation. It's not entirely alien to the Judeo-Christian tradition. Right. And uh, certainly you see that in Kabbalah. But when I talk to a lot of my Jewish friends, you know, they're just almost re-emerging into a deeper spirituality in some ways. I mean, you tell me, Jeff, but it seems like the, 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 the Jewish folks who came out of the boomer generation and earlier, they were really trying to fit into Americana. They were trying to fit into the American nation. So anything dealing with mysticism, anything dealing with reincarnation, they wanted to be as far away from that as possible. And why? Because politically, culturally, financially, they wanted to fit in. So when you look at Kabbalah and the Jewish tradition, even though that's deeply mystical and talks about reincarnation, talks about God, talks about ourselves being an extension of God, these were largely rejected by, by Jewish folks here in America. 
and have been still to this day. I would say many Jews are still very agnostic. Again, you tell me, but uh, still very ag agnostic and still look at Kabbalah as something weird and wacky and out there. Although, again, I think these kinds of things are starting to find credence now that uh, folks of every stripe are starting to go more deeply into their religious and spiritual experiences in, in general. Well, I can speak to my own case. I don't know that I'm uh, at all able to represent the Jewish population. But uh, yes, I grew up in the Midwest uh, in the 1950s, and it was all about conforming. It was all about fitting in. And uh, my religious education was basically Judaism is a rational religion. One God, it's all simple and rational. And uh, however, I, I was awakened in 1972 when my great uncle Harry appeared to me in, in a dream, a very profound dream. I woke up singing uh, a sacred Jewish song and, and crying tears of joy after that dream. And uh, so I learned that he had died virtually at the moment of the dream. So it was an incredible, life-changing awakening for me. And I asked, uh, may I have a book or an object, I said, an object owned by Uncle Harry, so I could remember him by. And I was sent a book, and I was told this was Uncle Harry's favorite book. And uh, only after I got it translated, because it was uh, written in Yiddish, uh, sort of a, a Jewish language that combined German and Hebrew, uh, I was I learned that this book was the tales of the Baal Shem Tov. It was all about Jewish mysticism. And I, I knew my great uncle Harry was a very religious man. He had been the president of a local congregation in Sheboygan, Wisconsin. But I didn't know anything about uh, the mysticism that ran in my own family until uh, I had that dream. Isn't that interesting? You know, one of the one of the things that has been lost to history and, and I, what I'm trying to unearth are some of those lost stories or some of those fascinating stories in our American lexicon that deal with the more mystical elements of who we are. And you've heard of Jewish science, correct? Have you ever heard the term of Jewish science? Kind of the the, the you know the parallel to Mary Baker Eddy's Christian Science. No, the I, the term I have heard was used by Hitler as a as a way of expelling Jewish scientists from Germany. My goodness, and and, and in some ways that's what benefited the United States, did it not? No, Jewish science science was mainly promulgated by Rabbis Alfred Geiger Moses and Louis Witt, and it was in response to to Mary Baker Eddy's you know growing influence with with Christian Science. And it, it looked a filter, you know, it became a Jewish reform movement, although not as large or as penetrating or as deep as, say, Christian science. But uh, a quote here from Rabbi Maurice Harris said, May it be that we Jews, the rationalists of history, have been rational to a fault and have not realized sufficiently the value of the mystical in life. And, and you know, even as World War II was starting to emerge in Europe, you had, uh, again, those who were into Jewish mysticism and Kabbalah, not so much here in the States, but in Europe. And Walter Benjamin wrote the thesis of philosophy of history. And on the eve of Nazi domination, he turned to Jewish mysticism kind of as, as a model of practice in dark times. 
Uh, and Martin Buber published these editions of, of the Hasidic and the mystical and mythic text of, of Judaism. So there really is, again, we talk about the occult. You talk about the occult on the program, on your program many times. And what does it mean? That which is hidden, more or less. But there is a great Jewish mystical tradition. It's just been subsumed into, at least in this nation, of Judaism and Jews trying to fit in. They were different. That, that culture was distinctly different. Let's not lose sight of the fact for a moment, and I know you don't. As much as we rail against racism and bigotry about people of color in this nation and slavery, etc., um, when those Ku Klux Klanmen, Klansmen marched down Pennsylvania Avenue in the 1920s to the White House, they were marching not only against blacks, but against Jews, against Catholics, my goodness. And so when we think about the very narrow-mindedness of that Christian nationalism, some of which we're starting to see again today become unearthed, make no mistake, much of that was directed against the Hebrew religion, against Jews. And let's face it, we're starting to see some of that again, Jeffrey. Let's not kid ourselves. Um, we're Again, it's not perhaps so prominent that we're seeing it as uh, the headlines in the news every day. But if you look deeply enough, you'll see that synagogues across this country have been desecrated. Again, nothing like, uh, let's not go, this is not crystal knock, but let's at least acknowledge the fact that those, that shadow element of bigotry and racism is alive and well in small pockets, but it's, it's very much present. Well, I would like to couch it a little differently. I think that one way of looking at this division is the distinction between a dualistic worldview and a non-dual worldview. If, you, if you're locked into dualism, which most of us are for most of our hours every day, you want to move towards the good and away from evil. You, you want to... Uh, sometimes hate evil, if to, to put it even more strongly. I don't believe in hating evil, but I do believe in moving away from it and, and in doing what we can to, to create a culture that's distant from evil in society. But there are those who believe that the proper thing to do is to hate evil, and so they have to designate something as evil. But the non-dual point of view would suggest that it's all one. There isn't the division between good and evil is at some level artificial. And uh, as a psychologist, I can say, and I think most psychologists would agree, most often a projection of uh, parts of ourselves that we're unwilling to own. Yeah, and this is what my, my fourth chapter is all about. You know, the other, you know, awakening catalysts and the other. And, you know, there was a time when people spoke of the ego. We spoke about it in Freudian terms. And then, of course, Carl Jung took it a step further and nowadays, whether it's Eckhart Tolle or A Course in Miracles, we start to see the ego maybe in its proper perspective beyond even a psychological definition of ego and that whole notion of the other. And of course, this is what perpetuates wars throughout history. Um, I also mentioned uh, driving out to Long Island. We had a little sum summer home out in Long Island uh, back in the, the 1960s. And I remember driving with my father. He was a chemical engineer, and he was a World War II vet, very rational kind of guy. And he turned to me one day and he said, you know, the only way Russia and the United States are going to get together 
is if we are attacked from a superior force from outer space. Now, again, this was my left brain, chemical engineer, dyed in the wool, army vet, you know, talking to me. about. But, you know, at the time coming out of, you know, Roswell and the Twilight Zone and later even Ronald Reagan spoke of, 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 of you know, aliens and UFOs as potential enemies. Um, this was the whole notion of the other. And that's why I had to include in my book a picture of Pogo. And uh, that, that great poster that said, we have met the enemy and he is us. Great, great profound wisdom from Walt Kelly there back in the 1950s and 60s. So it's all about living in what you might call a dual world, hot and cold, up and down, dark and light, etc. But knowing that ultimately there is this great unity. And I mean, that is really the calling of the United States itself. Unity in diversity. And we could fall into fascism, which is unity in commonality or sameness. But the calling, of course, of this nation, the deep spiritual roots of this nation, the destiny of this nation, if you will, if it realizes it, is to create that unity in diversity. And I think it was Meister Eckhart, the great Christian mystic, who said, God is closer to me than I am to myself. God is the great non-other. I, th I think I've got that quote right. Again, I have it in the book. But that's, I think, what we're all, I mean, look, we're in bodies. We know there's a three-dimensional world in. We, we, we deal with evil. We deal with, you know, ups and downs. We deal with people we don't like, all those kinds of things. But it's really, ultimately, I would hope to think it's revealing our, our higher selves to ourselves. When you point out that uh, America was founded originally as a refuge for all sorts of religious dissidents who uh, felt they had to leave Europe because of basically uh, state-run religions controlling the various European countries. Yeah. And our founders were delighted that there was just such a variety of religions, so no one religion took over. You know, and, and you know, look... Again, I, I, I'm here in Virginia Beach. I've been here for many years. And I, as I may, may have mentioned, and you may have mentioned in the intro, I've had the, the honor of working with people from both sides of this, this, the, these two poles of the American soul. Here in Virginia Beach, we're a, a microcosm of that trajectory of the American spiritual story. On one side of town, we have Pat Robertson and the Christian Broadcasting Network, the 700 Club. This has probably been the loudest, largest Christian voice, evangelical voice in the nation over the last 50 years. And on the other side at the oceanfront where we are, we have the Edgar Casey Institute. And of course, Edgar Casey, the great uh, American intuitive, the American prophetess, Sidney Kirkpatrick once called him uh, the, the most documented psychic in American history. So you literally have, you know, both of these things going on at, at the same time. And in some ways, you know, they are shadows to one another, but I think in some ways they're also demonstrating by inviting ourselves into looking at the shadow. This is one of the ways that we can evolve. It does seem to me that these four social elements that we've identified, science, religion, mysticism, and atheism, uh, at their best, they're all seeking some sense of ultimate truth. And, and that, they all have that in common. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, sometimes when I've spoken up here at, at the ARE and I mention atheism, I get pushback, you know, even in metaphysical communities. It's not just the Christian communities that don't even like to hear the word. And yet at the same time, I 
we, we must honor atheism is the great pruning agent of religion. It gets rid of religion's certitude. It gets rid of the dross of orthodoxy, the thou shalt and the thou shalt nots. And so in some ways, spiritual, I mean, atheism, whether it realizes it or not, is actually, in my view, helping to accelerate our own spiritual development. And I, Jeff, I've heard you talk about the Hegelian dialect many times on your program, and most people know it's thesis, antithesis, new synthesis. Well, in a three-dimensional world, dark and light, cold and hot, etc., I mean, what moves us forward? What moves us forward is what we perceive to be the other sometime, even though ultimately we know that they're not. And the same is true, I think, with atheism. They basically are castigating religious fundamentalism. And if a convergence is occurring, and I would say it is, convergence means the death of fundamentalism. It means the death of fundamental Christianity. It means the death of fundamental atheism. It means the death of fundamental scientific materialism. Uh, so in that sense, the convergence of these four forces are actually helping, one sector is actually helping the other. And we don't need to throw out any of them. I mean, I've likened atheists to uh, wolves outside the caribou pack. Every once in a while, those elder and diseased caribou need to go down. You need to thin the herd. Atheism has played that role. And um, there are some great atheists I, I bring up in the book, such as Sam Harris and Bill Maher. Some of the things they say are positively spiritual in my estimation. So yes, I think all four of these sectors are converging. It does create collision sometimes. And, you know, this kind of polarization and collision sometimes is the bane of our existence in our country, but it's also the grist of our evolution. And that's why I'm still, I still remain very hopeful, even though we're in kind of a dark period right now, that this convergence that looks like collision and is sometimes brings us to a next step on that evolutionary helix. In recent years, and maybe in the last 30 or 40 years, one of the major social movements has been the spread of Buddhism in, into the West. And when I look at Buddhism, I, what I see is uh, essentially a, a philosophy that recognizes that deities are real. There can be many real deities, but essentially it's an atheistic philosophy. It, it's suggesting that Whatever you believe, the truth is somehow beyond uh, anything that you can identify. Um, I may mess up her name. I think her last name is Blackburn or Blackmore. Susan Blackmore. You've probably interviewed her, right? I've met Susan. All right. Well, so here's a, someone who's written a book, maybe the ultimate book on consciousness. He's got three editions that came out. And she had a near-death experience. And she, at the time, they didn't even call them near-death experiences. She went through the, the tunnel, saw the light, the whole thing. And she, a, after talking about this, though, she came to realize, or she realized within herself, that it really wasn't real, that it was all made up, if you will, that it was lies, if you will. And she actually went and wrote three books. Richard Dawkins did the uh, forewords to at least one of the books. And so... Atheists and scientific materialists started jumping on her bandwagon and saying, see, see, these are people who have had these experiences and they're telling you it's nonsense. And Blackmore is an atheist. But here's what's really interesting. Over the years, as there was pushback from the Dean Radens of the world and other scientists who are talking about consciousness, 
uh, she had to say, you know, the dying brain theory is nothing that you can prove. And as a matter of fact, uh, as she, she talks about the fact that um, there may be less of a separation between me and you and a plant and a fish than we possibly can imagine. So she has ba basically, if you will, come 360 in some ways and sees the validity in the near-death experience, but mainly because, to get to your point, she engaged in Buddhism and Buddhist uh, meditation practices, and so she can see this. But of course, what she says at the end of this book is that if you study consciousness, it will change your life. All of us can agree with with that, regardless of what we might disagree on in in other regards. And and yes, Susan Blackmore is a very controversial figure within the field of parapsychology, but but you have to admire her contributions to the field of consciousness in in general. I know she had a fascinating paper published, as I recall, in Science, in which she pointed out that. The ego, or the self, I think she uses the word self to refer to the ego, to the small self in, in Jungian terms, not to the large self. But, but she pointed out that this is a concept. It's not a thing. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, she, and again, and, and what she said was, uh, again, you may find that one solid boundaries between the real and the unreal or the self and others you know, begin to look less and less solid. And, uh, you know, at, towards the end of her book, she says, as for what happens next, each of us will eventually get our own one chance to find out. Sounding very much like Benjamin Franklin. Benjamin Franklin, whose tombstone uh, is very suggestive of reincarnation. Without question. And actually, just to be absolutely clear about that, the original the original epitaph he wrote as a young man is not the one in Philadelphia, unfortunately. However, we have been able to, uh, we still have captured and we have memorialized, if you will, his original um, uh, tombstone or his, his original epitaph. And yes, absolutely. He talked about, you know, tearing the gilding out of, of his book, of the book of his, his own life and coming back again, hoping that the errata of the previous life would be corrected. So, yeah, I mean, um, of all of the figures that I talk about in the book and, and America's founding consciousness, what I, of course, the man I, I love the most is, of course, Benjamin Franklin, because of the fact that much like we appreciate him as this master negotiator, Franklin could negotiate between almost any religion, any political faction. I mean, here was a man who was a deist, believed in reincarnation and astrology, if you read Port Richard's Almanac, but he also really appreciated the preaching of the fundamentalist First Great Awakening, George Whitfield. And he kept a Bible in his drawer, and he kept little notes uh, uh, in that Bible, in, in, the, uh, in the margins. And when the United States looked like they were not going to adopt the, uh, the Constitution in 1787, Franklin pulled them all aside and said, have we forgotten our great friend of prayer back in the days of the revolution? We would pray together. You know, where is that great friend now? And whether that impacted the situation or not, 
the team got on board, they adopted the Constitution, and years later, of course, they added the Bill of Rights to that. But yeah, the the spiritual world of Benjamin Franklin is truly the great, maybe the greatest American story, uh, because he welcomed input in from every angle, including Roger Williams, who had been influenced by Native American Indians and the Iroquois Confederacy, which was really, in some ways, the foundational concepts of the original American Confederation, Articles of Confederation, which evolved, of course, into our Declaration and our Constitution. So, um, you know, it's not just some of the, the uh, you know, the small pamphlet advice that you read about Benjamin Franklin, you know, uh, you know, uh, early to bed, early to rise. It's that deep spirituality that was not religious, that was not orthodox, n not in any way, shape or form. Another fact I think you're highlighting here is that many of the most fundamentalist preachers in, in what some people call America's first great awakening, while they were fundamentalists and deeply Christian, they also had a mystical bent. Well, you know, that's interesting, Jeff, because I maybe that's further research on my part. I found that in some of the second great awakening um, figures. But, you know, people such as Whitfield and some of the others, well, I mean, Jonathan Edwards, you know, sinners in the hang, sinners in the hands of an angry God didn't find a whole lot of mysticism there. So maybe some further research or you can, you know, can enlighten me as to that. Certainly they had the passion and certainly they brought a nation together. Some historians say, well, the first great awakening didn't have a whole lot of impact on the American Revolution. I don't agree. Think about it for a moment. These are people who went up and down the coast. Someone like uh, a George Whitfield preached to some 10 million people over his lifetime. Is that even possible? I mean, he, he drew crowds of 8,000 in Philadelphia. His last circuit uh, tour, 23,000 people in Boston. I mean, he was the rock star, the hip hop star of his time. So whether there was a mystical element to him or not, he certainly brought people together on an emotional, maybe intellectual level. And you can't tell me that binding the people together of America, creating their own unique nature, didn't help foment that revolution and an attempt to break away from the mother country. I just wouldn't believe it. I'm sure that's correct, but I uh, just last week re released an interview with a, a gentleman whose pen name is Ronnie Pontiac. His book is called American Metaphysical Religion, which is a, a new academic movement. And he points out, of all people, Cotton Mather, the one who's known for persecuting witches, actually had a, a, a mystical and esoteric side to his work. I saw, you know, it's funny, uh, my wife Valerie showed that to me just this morning before I got on uh, to, to do this uh, work with you. And so, of course, I'm going to go back and look at the, ent the entirety of that interview. But it would be really heartening to know there was that, that other aspect of, if you will. I know that Catherine Albanese has written about uh, some of those things in early American religions and how they intersected with American uh, metaphysical uh, religions. But I guess... Some of the metaphysical elements had some fundamentalist portions to their to their theories and their uh, their nature, and the the opposite is is likely true as well. I'll have to go back and check that out. 
Pontiac even pointed out that among the you know, one of the the first governors of the colony of uh, Connecticut was practicing alchemy and brought over to North America the entire library of John Dee, who was the uh, astrologer and alchemist to Queen Elizabeth the First. Wow. Well, in those days, you could probably practice alchemy and still be a religious fundamentalist. I mean, it's interesting because. It was the, let, let's face it, it was the Puritans who were on the outs when they were in England and they were chased over here. And of course, once they come over here, they start getting into the same sort of fundamentalist attitude that they were being persecuted with over in England. In some ways, they wanted to create a theocracy. There were attempts to create a theocracy in Massachusetts and in Connecticut. And of course, it was the likes of Roger Williams who interacted with American Indians and saw a different way of living and said, I don't want any part of this, uh, this kind of puritanical fundamentalism. So we can't deny the fact either that this is very much a central core of American religion that evolved into the Great Awakenings. And I still think we see many elements of that today, certainly with the Christian movement, the Christian evangelical movement, who in some ways have some of the same tenets and beliefs as the first and second great awakenings. They may, they may not be burning witches at the stake, but there is that whole notion of right and wrong, heaven and hell. If you don't believe in Jesus as your savior, then you're, you buy your asbestos suit now because you're going to need it. Well, you also talk about, I guess you would call it the second great awakening in, in America. And I gather it's largely associated with the American transcendentalists who were enormously important to both in literature and in culture. Well, actually, I think, I think the, the most important, Jeffrey, if you were to ask me now, a book by, I got to take this book out. This is a book by uh, Jacob Needleman. You probably interviewed him somewhere along the line, right? I did. He, he proffers that America has an innately mystical core. And I concur. Okay, maybe I'm not a hard sell. But that, the essence of that core, if you will, are what the transcendentalists brought forth in this nation. And um, to borrow a phrase from someone who's been on your program, Mitch Harwood said, if you really want to know what the founders thought, look to the transcendentalists. Because the transcendentalists took the deism and the Unitarianism and the Freemasonry, the core spiritual consciousness affectations of our founders, and that evolved over time. Now, in my book, I make a real difference between the Second Great Awakening, which is still a real Christian movement, Charles Grandison Finney, the burned-over district in New York, tent revivals, that sort of thing, as differing from transcendentalism. So I look at the Second Great Awakening, this great Christian tent revival revolution, and again, the light shadow to that was transcendentalism. In some ways, a quieter voice, a less Christic voice, and certainly a less fundamental voice. But it's these two powerful engines which are the precursors to the Civil War. And without them, we don't have a Civil War. Without them, we don't have the evolution that comes out of the Civil War. I mean, when you think about it, um, evangelical uh, William uh, Garrison is, is the first anti-slavery abolitionist in the nation. He puts up the newspaper, The Liberator, actually under uh, funded by uh, two uh, evangelicals, the Tappan brothers, 
And he, in the 1830s, this is, my goodness, 30 years before the Civil War, he is railing against slavery. And the transcendentalists get on that train as well. And that's, of course, where they kind of come together. And this is, again, what I address in America's Next Great Awakening, is that there are times and periods in our history where this more fundamental, sometimes evangelical element finds enough common ground with the esoteric perennial wisdom element in the American soul, where they bond together and work together to help get us to the next step. Now, we're in this, what I would call, 80-year period. Many people have said this before me, Thomas Jefferson, Arnold Toynbee, Daniel Quinn have all talked about the fact that there are four generations within a larger life, an 80-year period. And I think those who have talked about it most succinctly are Neil Howe and William Strauss, who wrote the, the great book, The Fourth Turning. And so every 80 years, and whether you think it's real or just a coincidence, or that we go through cycles of history, America right now is in an 80-year cycle that matches up with the Revolutionary War, the Civil War, and the twin crises of the Depression and World War II. Now, we don't see it. Maybe it's not there yet, let's say, as bad as what happened prior to the Civil War. But we're in that kind of period now. So if history does repeat itself, well, Mark Twain is supposedly, say, supposedly said history doesn't repeat itself, but it likely rhymes, although he probably didn't say that either. But there is some semblance of truth to that, that we go through these cycles of history. And again, I think the fourth turning says it most aptly and most succinctly that we're in that period right now that may be where we found that the transcendentalists and the evangelicals found enough common ground to move the country forward through a great crisis. And we'll have to do the same thing again if we're going to come out on the other side of this whole and more highly evolved. I have often thought when I hear people say, oh, we're in a terrible crisis right now, I think to myself, well, it's not as bad as the Second World War. But when I think about it more deeply, I, I'm beginning to be concerned that it's much worse because we have Americans set against Americans, and at the same time, we, we have this intrusion of technology into our lives in, in a way that has never occurred before. And the technology seems to have the ability to shape human behavior, to push human beings to, to the extremes so that the center may not hold. That's, that's the real risk. Right. Uh, to quote another person who's graced your program, Glenn Parry, we're closer to fascism and to sacred America than we've ever been before. Which one's going to turn up? Is it a new age of enlightenment or do we devolve into, into fascism? And we haven't even begun, nor would we have time today to talk about artificial intelligence as being part of this. But in some ways it may be worse, Jeff, but it's also not something, it's not something we haven't seen before. One of the things that we forget as Americans, you know, we think about 80 years ago and we think about World War II. Well, we in this country, we were all together, right? We were against fascism. We were against the Nazis. We were against the Japanese and the Italians. And we all bonded together. Yeah, but when you go into history and you look at it more deeply, you realize there were lots of fascistic elements here in this country. Most people don't realize that there was at least one and probably two real attempts to overthrow the Franklin Delano Roosevelt administration. 
Uh, Smedley Butler, talk, it's talked about in Gangsters of Capitalism, where a World War I vet was actually um, summoned by the captains of industry, people that he had worked for before, and was, and was asked basically to overthrow Roosevelt's government. Father Coughlin was part of the Catholic Front, and they were also attempting an overthrow. So this is not something new. It's just that someone like an FDR was able to coalesce the nation under democracy and preserve democracy, our democratic republic, to work against fascism the world over. And yet now we find that some of those fascistic elements are rising again in America, in America today. And it's not us against them over there. It's us against us. And so it is one of those great lessons going back to what we talked about before. I've met the enemy and he is me or he is us. And the notion of the ego, what do we find? What can we learn from the shadow element or those people that think differently than we do? And how will that help America get through this next crisis? Because you're right, in some ways, it is worse. It is worse. Fake news, artificial intelligence, social media, and polarization like we haven't seen probably since our Civil War. Well, I suppose what is new and what is really hopeful in the last 80 years in my lifetime, and I, I can say ever since I was an undergraduate student in college, I think I've been a part, not just a part of this movement, but it has surrounded me my entire adult life. And that is the unification of science and mysticism. It's, it's a new movement. It's a growing movement. And it has the authority of science behind it as well as the authority of the perennial philosophical traditions. Yeah, uh, let me, you know, and again, to quote uh, Eckhart Tolle, you know, we are now in an age where the evolution of consciousness is not just preferred, it's an absolute necessity. And in chapter four of my book, I talk about, you know, the greatest existential crises being both the climate change and authoritarianism. And if you move into a place of economic instability at all, and we go back and look at the 1930s, it was after the Great Depression. It could have happened here, it did not. We pro probably came closer to it than we realized. But in other countries, that's what fueled the flames of fascism. And what is fascism in many ways? And we can go into a whole, whole bunch of definitions, but let's just look at it this way. When someone comes along and says, I alone can fix it, and we've heard that even in recent American political times, run the other way, or wake up, or be wary, because when times are tough, people, when we don't trust ourselves, we don't trust our own divinity, perhaps, our own wisdom, we look to the strong man, we look to the authoritarian, we look to the autocrat who's going to, you know, bring us through this, uh, this existential crisis. And of course, that's the wrong lever to pull. But evolution of consciousness is no longer an option. We must evolve. And when you talk about this bridge or convergence between mysticism and science, which the Dalai Lama writes very eloquently on as well, that to me is the linchpin of, of moving us forward in this next generation. 
I, I agree with you. At the same time, the word evolution of consciousness has a, a, a dark undertone as, as well. It, it, it's sort of reminiscent of uh, social engineering, of, of the idea that somebody up at the top can engineer things to make society evolve in, in a certain direction. And I think what, what we're seeing today is, is not evolution from outside, but from social forces, but from within, where, where we discover it's already there. We don't have to evolve. We just have to realize who we are. Yeah, I mean, you know, Jeffy, and, and since you get the opportunity to investigate and interview all these amazing minds, and, and thank you for going into dark places as well. I, I thank Mitch Horowitz, uh, who wrote Occult America, goes into some really interesting dark places, we, which we have to do. It's, it, it's part of our eternal makeup. But at the same time, I love the fact that you also find a way through all of that. And again, it is an internal evolution. I would think most of the people listening to your program, I would hope don't see the evolution of consciousness as being some sort of social engineering. That would not be my take. But certainly, I would say more of it being something of of an interior evolution as opposed to someone doing it for me. You know, I have a master's degree in criminology. It was a very controversial time because they, uh, Ronald Reagan, who was governor of California back then, shut down the School of Criminology at Berkeley while I was still a student there. Why? Why would he do that? He, these criminologists at Berkeley were beginning to ask questions that made the political establishment very uncomfortable. They were asking questions like, what are the police doing to create crime, for example? And, and that was so unacceptable, they just shut the whole school down. Uh, but within that school, there was a, a strong feeling like we are the wise ones. We have sociology. We could engineer society. If only the politicians would listen to us and put us in charge, we, we would fix things. And, and I think that can be a very dangerous attitude, and, and it's common within various uh, branches of the scientific community. Yes. Yeah. In other words, just take this pill, just use this artificial intelligence. Well, you had Don Latin on uh, recently. I had the honor of, of interviewing him many years ago. I found it to be fascinating. A lot of people looked at psychedelics the same way, right? Take this little pill and it's all going to be blissful. You're going to see the God within and we can move from there. Well, you know, the Beatles told us that only took them so far. And then the real work began. And George Harrison, you know, spoke about it very eloquently. You know, he came to the United States and he had, they had already been through the LSD experience. And they come here, he comes to California and he comes to Haight-Ashbury and he sees these spotty kind of vagrants, if you will, a lot of people lost in their lives. And he started to examine what he had been doing with LSD. And he looked at it under a microscope and he said, it looked like old rope. And he said, I wasn't going to put that in my body anymore. There are no panaceas. And it was right after that, of course, that the Beatles engaged the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi and, and Harrison and many of the others took that, that inner step. So we get back to that whole notion. Someone from the outside is not going to do it for us. And that's even a message maybe to evangelicals and evangelicalism. I mean, in some ways, evangelicals have walked um, in lockstep politically 
and religiously and have looked at Jesus as the outside savior. Just check the Jesus box and I'm in. I don't have to do anything else. I don't have to worry about anything else as opposed to maybe Carl Jung or Aldous Huxley or any number of other teachers who will look at Jesus and say, all right, here's a guy on the hero, Emerson. That's why he was kicked out of Harvard, right? <laughs> here's Jesus. He's on the hero's journey. Follow him, but you got to do it too. It's not, he's, he's, you know, he's the great example. He's not the great exception. So this is part of what the convergence of these four areas, I think, can lead us to. I do have a part of my, my book uh, where I talk about um, Billy Graham, Bill Maher, Martin Luther King, uh, Thomas Jefferson, and uh, Howard Thurman. What they all had in common was they all believed that Jesus was the greatest uh, moral teacher uh, to ever walk the path of life. And so there is that commonality, but how we interpret this man, I think, is going under, certainly going under evolution, both without and within. We see people leaving churches, but I think there's going to be, there already is a greater uh, appreciation for the man, not as something outside myself, not as an outside savior, but as a person who walked this life and went through this, and he's asking me, if you will, to walk that path with him. Not that you and I need to be crucified in a metaphorical or literal sense, but that uh, this is a path of, of awakening. And, and Jesus is the great example, whether you're Hindu, Christian, or an atheist like Sam Harris or Bill Maher. Or Jewish. Yeah, <laughs> he, wasn't, he wasn't Jew after all, let's face it. He, he had the... You know, and and look, before there were before there were Christians, there was the way there was the Essenes, as Edgar Casey talked about this, this little enclave of, of mystical Judaism. Right. I mean, that's that's where the Jesus story begins and ends. And yet we see in the 20th century, less less so in the 21st century, how there was great enmity between uh, Christian evangelicalism and 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 Judaism. But largely that's that's ended for other nefarious reasons, but that's ended. I am, I suppose, mostly a secular mystical person, but there's one quote of Jesus that has really stuck with me that I like a lot, which is, love your enemies. And uh, I get the impression that that's embodied in, in the message of your book when we look at these disparate groups that uh, are often fighting each other. There's much to admire in each and every one of them. Yeah, and that's, and that's why Jesus is just all right, uh, because when and it's interesting, again, having gone through the experience as a Catholic and, and, and going to Pat Robertson's, you know, graduate school for broadcast journalism, <clears throat> you know, it was, it just amazed me how rarely, how rarely the, the quotes from scripture were extolled, like, do you not know that ye are gods? That, um, when thine eye is single, what is the quote? Comes from Matthew. Um, Oh, when your eye is single, your whole body shall be full of light. That reminds me of the Annuit Septus uh, pyramid with the light, with the, the, the singular third eye at the top. I mean, there are all of these great quotes in canonical Gospels, whether it's the Gnostic Gospels or the King James version of what Jesus said, which is all about love, which is all about our divinity. And yet, 
this is why I think sin redemption Christianity is on its way out. The guilt and the fear and the shame in any fundamentalism that uses those tools to put people in line. What is it that Swami Beyond Ananda said? Uh, spirituality is accessing the divine. Religion is crowd control. <laughs> <laughs> he may not have been the original, but he may have said that on your program. But, you know, if we really want to take a deeper look into who this man was, then we certainly can look at all of those, even in traditional scripture. You don't even have to go to Edgar Cayce or A Course in Miracles. You can read it in the canonical gospels. He has all of these quotes about our own inner nature being essentially that of love. We are gods. And, and again, new thought the the, the uh, phrase that William James came up with, a healthy-minded religion, is that, you know, we are here to realize our own divinity. And this is what this man Jesus is here to teach us. And that's why New Thought extols Jesus as the great example, not the great exception. I think that that, that window is going to winnow. I think that the distance between those two points is winnowing now. And again, we see the attrition in churches across the country and the attrition of fundamentalism. But again, this is the, this is the output, if you will, uh, of, of convergence. When these ideas converge, it looks messy. It looks like collision, but it does create a new synthesis. And I think, you know, in 50 years, we're going to see Jesus in a whole new light, maybe a little bit more closely as Mr. Edgar Casey saw the man Jesus. Well, I'm very glad you brought up William James. He's probably the uh, foremost intellectual influence on uh, the work that I do. And I think he embodies this synthesis that you're describing, this new awakening, more than any other figure I'm aware of. And he did it mostly back in the 19th century. Uh, and, and he did it with uh, enormous eloquence. Oh, my goodness. You know, it's amazing to me, Jeff, and maybe the new great American awakening will embody some of the characteristics that two great Americans uh, prophesied, if I can use that term. Both Thomas Jefferson and William James both foresaw a new thought type religion as being the predominant religious expression in America. Now, not the religion, but the predominant religious or spiritual expression. Thomas Jefferson said late in his life, he said, I trust there is not a young man now living who will not die a Unitarian. And Unitarianism was separate from the, a lot of those orthodoxies, the Calvinism and Anglicanism of its day. And then a hundred years later, you have William James, who writes the varieties of religious experience. He also travels the world and interviews and talks to people of other religions. And New Thought, again, the term that he coined, basically looked at a healthy-minded religion, a unity, if you will, amongst mind, body, and spirit. And he said that New Thought was the only uniquely religious philosophy that America offered to the world. It was the only unique philosophy America offered to the world. Interesting, no? And yet he felt that that would become the predominant religious expression. And maybe that coincides with Albert Einstein, who said, you know, the future religion will be a cosmic religion and uh, and will be, you know, a unity of, of, of these kinds of thoughts and these kinds of belief systems. So William James, there is no greater man 
in American history. And I know you've talked about him often. So on my radio show, I always like to give pop quizzes. If you don't mind, I'll give you a little pop quiz. I'll bet you you'll get it. But Jeff, let me ask you a question. Now in Catholicism, probably not in Judaism, but in Catholicism, because you don't get baptized or confirmed or you, you do in Judaism, but it's a little different. But in Catholicism, when you get a godfather, that godfather is your spiritual teacher for life. Who is William James's godfather? Emerson. There you go. What does that yeah, tell that young man what he's won? So, <laughs> but think about it. But think about it for just a moment. I mean, if you were going to pick the spirit, the preeminent spiritual teacher, I'm going to say it, in American history, okay, the man who was too liberal for Unitarianism, Ralph Waldo Emerson, the man who got up on the stage and gave the Harvard Divinity Address in 1838. And when he likened us to Jesus, meaning not just that we're supposed to believe like Jesus, but we are Jesus in our own ways, and they kicked him out for 30 years. I mean, that man ends up being your godfather. I think that says volumes about who William James was. And again, to me, and I'll go back to Jacob Needleman and the American soul, he is the quintessential pragmatic, pragmatist, if you will. He wrote pragmatism, right? When he reached that point in his life, even though he had all of these wonderful spiritual teachers walk into his home because his father invited every religionist and crackpot and crazy person and mystic into the home to expose his children to various beliefs. When he hit a wall, he went to the Amazon to basically go into a deep inner search. And he found that, you know, God wasn't speaking to him. So he had to find his way out of this. He himself had to kick his way through. He didn't know where God was. And he did. And he came out the other side. And so he he valued both mysticism and pragmatism, which to me, like Needleman would say, is the essence of the American soul. Pragmatic mysticism. And I don't think there's any greater example of that in American history than William James. I hope that one day William James will... I mean, I know in some ways he's gotten his due, but isn't it interesting in a nation that has had Jerry Falwell and Billy Graham and Pat Robertson and these people who have been adhered to by millions and millions of people. If you ask them who William James was, you know, maybe 10% or 15% of them would know who he was. Would they know he was the father of American psychology? Would they know that, you know, he had this, this amazing life and wrote tomes such as Does Consciousness Exist? Um, these are all great things at the very beginning of the 20th century that have helped set that mystical course of America, which I think, again, is coming back around to converge once again. And I guess what I'm suggesting in my book is that the next great American awakening, whatever that looks like, is simply not another Christian or fundamentalist awakening. It's literally the merging of these two poles of the American soul. Well, I think science has to play an important role these days, even, even though these religions are still very powerful. Uh, I don't think they have the authority uh, in our culture that science now has. And William James uh, was really among the very first 
scientists to say that we we can address questions of consciousness, we can address questions of the paranormal, and we can begin to study religion scientifically. I think uh, I think he really set the pattern for for what a new awakening would be like. Absolutely. And look to the great quantum physicists of the 1930s, the Max Planck's and the Schopenhauer's. Look to Edgar Mitchell, the sixth man to walk on the moon, has a mystical experience on the way back, looks at Earth from... And here's, here's an MIT scientist, okay? Not your everyday mystic, let's face it, okay? And he comes back, but he had that mystical experience. And what does he do? He forms the Institute of Noetic Sciences. I know you've interviewed probably most of the people who have, you know, graced their doors before. And you probably talked to Edgar Mitchell back in the in the 80s and 90s yourself. And this is the great, again, pragmatic mysticism, the merging of science and mysticism. And even though there are scientific materialism still holds sway in scientific communities, there is this erosion. Again, we hear from scientific materialists, well, these are all anecdotes. Well, someone wiser than me once said, you know what the plural of anecdotal is? Data research, analysis. And that's why I love what they're doing. Daryl Bem has done at Cornell University or Gary Schwartz at the University of Arizona or the Global Consciousness Project at Princeton. And again, at our own University of Virginia, where my son went to with a division of, of perceptual studies. These are people saying, we sense that these things are true. Now let's take them into the lab. Let's examine them. Let's go out and take stories of people. I mean, Ian Stevenson, uh, you know, the, the, the doctor, the, the actual the leader of the Department of Psychiatry at Virginia for many years, 2000 cases of reincarnation of young kids coming up and saying, I remember this life. I mean, this happened to me and that happened to me. And I lived here and this was my mother. I mean, uh, that great series you've probably watched on Netflix called uh, Surviving Death. The uh, first and sixth, I'm sure since you're you're the expert in the area, Jeff. The first and sixth uh, episodes in that uh, series on Netflix basically is a focus on what they're doing at the University of Virginia's DOPS program. And look, for many years, Stevenson and Grayson and Tucker, you know, they had to do some of this work on the down low. Let's face it. It's like, we need money, but we can't talk too loudly about it because those people, <laughs> those scientists, you know, giving us money, uh, from big corporations, they start looking at near-death experiences and out-of-body experiences and life reviews, and they're going to pull their money out pronto. And so finally now, in the early 20th century, the 21st century, we're starting to see people saying, well, wait a minute, let's, let's at least take a look at the research. Let's see what they have to offer. And you get people such as, uh, you know, Grayson and Tucker, who've done a phenomenal job of showing this is absolutely a very real possibility. What does it mean to us individually? What does it mean to us collectively? And again, there's your mystical elements and there's your scientific elements. There's the, the marriage of those two, if you will. And that's why we have to laud the Bigelows of the world, uh, where, where you won that, that, uh, that magnanimous prize. Or we have to look at a John Templeton or a Fetzer. These are people who in the last 50 years have said, I don't know if I'm a believer or not, but guess what? I've got a lot of coin. Let's go ahead and put it into research. Let's let their, these guys do what they're going to do. These are the, the age-old questions. I don't know what I believe. Let's see what these folks have to say. And here's a million bucks or two million bucks or, ten, or whatever it is. 
instead of putting you into a rocket ship, we're going to put it into is their life after death. And uh, or maybe if they're rich enough, they can do both. But that's what's been happening. And thankfully, you know, the Fetzers and Templetons and Bigelows have put their money where their mouths are. It's a good thing they do, because let's take the DOPS program at the University of Virginia. They've had funding for 50 years, and that's really what it takes. William James said, we can't expect progress in this field decade by decade as in other sciences because the issues are so deep. We have to expect progress by the century and by the half century. And now we're seeing that. A half century, we can look back. I can say, you know, it's been 40 years since I got a, a degree in parapsychology at the University of California. So we have the perspective now of many decades of scientific research in this field, and it's not going to go away. It's not, although money, if you ask any of those organizations, they'd all say money is still hard to come by. We're not getting it. In fact, I think I probably heard it on New Thinking Aloud where, you know, there's an infinitesimally small amount of money that has been contributed to parapsychological research versus psychological research. I mean, it's like infinitesimally small. You probably know the numbers better than I do. And if you talk to, you know, the Dean Radens or others, they would probably tell you that, you know, money is still not real easy. But I think it's becoming easier. And I think it's, you know, discussions like we're having and they're having writ large now on, on American stages. Although TED Talks are still a little reticent, you know. You know, <laughs> Stephen Schwartz is still banned from TED Talks and Graham Hancock and others. Someday they'll get their due. But uh, that's eroding, maybe slowly at times, but uh, well said. We have to look at, at things, evolution in, in half-century steps sometimes. And, and I could say what I've found for myself is that being uh, in, in an unusual situation, having a, a doctoral degree in a field that no one else had, uh, I've had to be very entrepreneurial. And uh, as a result of that, what I'm doing now is an example of seeing how much you can accomplish on the, the little amount of funds that you have. And uh, I've discovered that, you know, we can do a great deal. Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that because the same thing has been true here in this town. Again, Pat Robertson's got multi-million, if not billion dollar, you know, endowments. He's got a university there. I mean, you know, the first time, I, and this is where I actually got my start in television many, many, many years ago in the Paleozoic era, uh, I, I actually walked into Studio 7 and 8 over at the Christian Broadcasting Network. It took my breath away. I mean, national networks were coming in to look at their various technological packages. But at the same time, they had, you know, spiritual myopia, in my humble opinion. And then across the other side of town, you'd, you'd walk into the Casey Library, and here was this great pantheon of spiritual mysticism and ecumenism. But, you know, the carpeting was a little worn and the fluorescent lights flickered and that sort of thing. So there is hopefully coming a time period in this nation where some of the best of those both worlds can marry. That's always been part of my vision. And um, I'm going to stick to it until they scatter my ashes out here on the Atlantic Ocean. Well, Christopher Naughton, 
I really admire your vision, your dedication, uh, and the scope of uh, the work you've done. This has been a fabulous conversation covering the the wide range of, of American thought with the idea that uh, these diverse elements of our culture are coming together. And I think since we're recording this interview uh, on a day after the United States House of Representatives has just passed a, a major bipartisan bill that uh, there's a lot of reason for optimism at this moment in time. So it's a great joy to be with you today, and I would be delighted to invite you back anytime to New Thinking Aloud. You are a, a voice of wisdom and compassion, and it's a, an honor for me to share this conversation with the New Thinking Aloud audience. Oh, my goodness, Jeffrey. Thank you so very much. And and I do remain hopeful. I think America has always gotten through our existential crisis. I think we'll get through this one as well. And I think uh, you're helping. You're, you're part of the solution, my friend. Well, thank you again. And for those of you listening or watching, thank you for being with us. You are the reason that we are here. We've just released issue number two of the New Thinking Aloud quarterly magazine. You can download a free copy at the New Thinking Aloud Foundation website, newthinkingaloud.org.